So, uh, so page 10, Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. And then he died. This is the account of Shem, Ham and Japheth. Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The Japhethites. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riftath, and Togama. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittites, and the Rodonites. From these, the maritime people spread out into the, their territories by their clans with, within their nations, each with its own language. The Hamites, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it's said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in China. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin which is between Nineveh and Kala, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Luddites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtuthites, uh, Pathrasites, Kasluhites, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon towards Jera 
as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. The Shemites. Sons were also born to Shem, whose elder brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, Meshech. Arphaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almodad, Sheleth, Hazar Maveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Shepha in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Well done, Olaf. If you're, if you're someone who helps out with Bible re- readings here at Christchurch, this is the week you're glad it wasn't you, wasn't it? Well done. That was, that was a mighty job you did there. Do, do thank Olaf uh, for reading that uh, for us um, at the end of the service. Well, look, um, as we come to look at that, just to get us thinking, you, ha- you don't have to live very long, do you, before you discover a sense that Stuff in life just isn't fair a lot of the time. And that someone in charge should be doing something to fix it. I don't know if you watched the first England match the other week. And Harry Kane being wrestled to the ground. Did you see that? There was a bit of it even today. And the referee in that first match, he did nothing. He did nothing. So unfair. Even as a Scotsman, I thought, it's a, it's a, bit, it's a bit unfair. <laughs> and that's just football, isn't it? I met a friend the other week, he moved with his family for work, he was telling me all about it, and told me that his daughter at her new primary school was bullied for almost a year. It's heartbreaking when you hear that kind of stuff. Primary school, if it was not fair. Or you think wider than that about some of the things that go on on the world stage. Migrant families, parents separated from children, the photos that have been coming out in this past week, or... Or is it fake news? Have the photos all been manipulated? Whatever it is, isn't it? Something wrong is happening. You look at the things in the world, and then when someone mentions God, you could be forgiven for thinking, well, look, if he's real and he's there, then why is he not fixing things? And then you read a passage like we've just read tonight. That that passage, you think about all that goes on, and you read this bit of Genesis 9, and you think, what has that got to do with anything? What's it got to do with cheating footballers? 
What's it going to do with school bullies? What's it going to do with migrant families? What's it going to do with me? Come and look at it. If you've got it there in front of you, I don't know what you thought as Olaf was reading it for us, particularly that first part. It's a weird story, isn't it? It's weird. You read it. Some parts of the Bible you read and think, what's going on there? If you've been here on Sunday evenings, this is the end of the Noah story, and it's weird. Noah gets drunk, gets naked, and gets in his tent. Comes from nowhere. You think, that's weird. And then, on top of that, his youngest son, Ham, comes and looks at him. That's what we're told. It's a weird story. I think the more you think about it, you, you read it and you think, it's kind of a familiar story as well. I don't know if you've ever had that experience watching a film, convinced you've not seen it. My mom used to do this all the time. No, I've not seen it. And then five minutes from the end, she'd say, oh, yeah, 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 I know what's going to happen. And she'd remember it. It began to feel familiar. You sort of get that here, I think, as you read this. You think, oh, this is a a weird story. But as you read it, you think, there's familiar things here. Here's a man who seems to have been the picture of the good life, Noah. And then he messes it up because he takes some fruit and everything goes pear-shaped. Sound familiar if you've been reading through Genesis? Here's a man who ends up feeling awkward and ashamed because of his nakedness. And need someone else to provide a covering for him. Does that sound familiar? If you've been reading Genesis back to Adam and Eve. Here's a story where towards the end curses are spoken. Sound familiar? Here's a family where brothers begin to choose different ways of living and end up on very different sides. Does that sound familiar? And even Noah... In verse 20 of chapter 9 is described as a man of the soil. Does that sound familiar? There's an echo of something else. One of his ancestors back in chapter 4 verse 2 was called something like that. That was Cain. It's a weird story. And yet for Genesis it's a familiar story. It's like you're watching a budget remake of the original. Different actors, but almost almost exactly the same script. You get past the weirdness and you find yourself asking, why so similar? Why is this story dropped in here? What's it meant to say to us? And look, here's something of what I think the Bible wants to persuade us of. And the first thing is just this. uh, People are unsurprisingly predictable. Think about what's just happened. Uh, People sometimes say, don't they, why does, if there is a God, why doesn't he just get rid of all the bad stuff? Well, there it was. We've had the flood. And then a fresh start. Noah, righteous man, saved with his family. And within the time, within the time it takes to grow some grapes and ferment them, it all goes wrong. Same old story. Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with wine. Your mom enjoys a glass of wine from time to time. That is fine. There's nothing wrong with wine. It's just what he does in verse 21. He gets drunk. He lies uncovered in his tent. Some translate it, he uncovered himself. The the Bible doesn't elaborate, but you get from the tone, don't you? you? 
You feel it. He's drunk and he's disgraced himself. The pre-flood saint, in the blink of an eye, has become the post-flood sinner, just like that. And then Ham, verse 22, finds his father's folly just a little bit too delicious. And instead of covering him, I think we're meant to understand he mockingly publicizes it. You understand what's going on. He goes in for a gape and he comes out for a gossip. It's the ancient equivalent of body shaming on social media. That's what he's doing. And the Bible writer views the second sin even more dimly. Hardly off the ark. We're hardly off the ark. And it's going wrong. And the speed might surprise you, but our author is not surprised. If you've been coming along on Sunday evenings, do you, do you remember what he told us about the cause of the flood? If you want to, you can just flick back to chapter 6, just a couple of pages, or one page back. Chapter 6. And verse 5, and we read this a, a couple of weeks ago. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. And then coming off the ark, do you remember what God said again just last week? As Noah offers his sacrifice, John told us about this, you just turn on a page again to chapter 8 and verse 21. Halfway down the left-hand side, it said this, that the Lord, the Lord said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart uh, is evil from childhood. You understand how the story's panning out. Genesis 9 says the flood... The flood didn't change people. People remain unsurprisingly predictable. People tend towards evil thoughts and actions. And Genesis 9 is saying, this world, this world of Genesis 9, this is your world. So don't be surprised by the football cheats. Don't be surprised by the school bullies. Don't be surprised by the mistreated migrants. Be sad. Long for something different. Do a little bit that you can, but don't be surprised by it. It's what people do. Do you think that's a bit harsh? Do you think I've got lots of friends? They're lovely. People are not really like that, are they? I'm in the market for a new mobile phone. Mine's getting a bit old. It's getting a bit slow. I'm wanting a new one. I like gadgets. They're great innovations, aren't they? I remember, some of you are much younger, I can remember before mobile phones. I remember when you had to have coins in your pocket in case you had to go to the telephone box. Can you believe a time like that ever existed? The, the great inventions. I was talking to uh, Matt Bennington, who works on the staff here, uh, during the week about getting a new phone. And he was telling me during the week, they bought a video camera. His family bought a video camera. But since getting his phone, he doesn't need it. Because the, the phone camera is so good. There's all these videos in that. They're great inventions, aren't they? Mobile phones, they're amazing things. Such a great invention. So great, Parliament has de been debating the past weeks a new law to criminalize something called upskirting. Men with phones. Trying to take photos up women's skirts. And you hear that and you think, can you believe 
can you believe we'd need a law on the statute books to say you can't do that? It's unbelievable, isn't it? But the Bible's not surprised. You think the world of Genesis 9 is weird. You, you think as you read that story, this is weird. What a weird story. It's got nothing in us. Every inclination of our hearts tends towards evil. Even from childhood. Those of you who are parents, it's hard to think of your kids that kind of way, isn't it? It feels a bit extreme. I, I know they get things wrong, but they're good kids. And I know they are. But the Bible says you do know the way their hearts incline. Just the same as yours. Those of you who are in your teens, early 20s, you know that, don't you? You know what goes on inside your own head and your heart, the way you think, stuff that goes on there. Have you ever played that game, Would You Rather? We play it sometimes around our uh, dinner table to the boys. You know, would you, would you rather um, cry vinegar or smell of sweaty socks? Would you rather? You've got to choose one. And then we said this one around the table once. Would you rather never be able to speak again? Would you rather, if you could never speak again, just think about that for a moment, those of you who are extroverts, or would you rather you had to say everything out loud that you ever thought all the time? My six-year-old said, my six-year-old said, oh, I'd want to say everything I think all the time. My eight-year-old was about to pause, it was about to say the same thing, and I said, everything you ever think. And he stopped and said, I never want to speak again. It's a difference two years makes. Eight years old, and you're already aware there's things about you on the inside you don't want to come to the outside. Every inclination of our heart tends towards evil, even from childhood. I mean, what parent encourages children with upskirting? Nobody. No parent encourages that. You don't need to teach that, but put a phone in the hand of a teenager or a young man and don't be surprised if he doesn't find a perverted way to use it. And don't think you're any different. Don't think I am. It may not be upskirting. But you know, those of you who are younger, you know how quickly you want to argue and disobey parents. Young men, you know the appeal to try and look at someone who's naked. Young women, you know the delicious feeling of hearing some gossip or passing it on. And they're not, they're not just stereotyped like that. There's crossovers with all those things. And all of us know how quickly temper, lust, greed, selfishness at home, laziness at work flicks on in you. That's why we need to, to battle against it. You know, when you watch films, baddies are always interesting, aren't they? They've often got English accents in American films because I think it makes baddies seem more interesting and sophisticated. Darth Vader, he's really interesting. We want to know his backstory. How did he get like this? He's so interesting. And the Bible says we're the baddies and we're not interesting. We're unsurprisingly predictable. If there's a surprise in this story, if there's a surprise in Genesis chapter 9, it's not with what people do. It's with what God doesn't do because Genesis 9 says to us look God's reaction is consistently restrained 
We find it difficult, don't we, when people are inconsistent. Children with parents whose moods are fickle. Employees with bosses whose management techniques are erratic and changeable. When dad walks through the door, what kind of mood will he be in? It's an awful thing to be feeling, isn't it? When I meet with the boss, will he be fair or ferocious? It's hard living life, always uncertain. What about God? What is he like? We've been told in Genesis, the evil inclinations of the human heart provoked God's anger so much that he sent the flood. And now we're seeing the same old story. So where's the wipeout flood? Well, there isn't one. And while in our history there's been devastating floods, the Bible wants to say, not like this one. There's never been another one like this one. Why not? Is God fickle? Does he come to work one day ready to beat up on you? Then show up the next, ready to smile at you. Is God inconsistent? People sometimes say that about God, don't they? Have you heard this kind of thing? Well, the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New. But you can even feel it here. Is God sometimes loving? Sometimes angry? Is he inconsistent? And Genesis wants to say to us, no, it's the opposite. God doesn't bring a flood. It's it's not because he's inconsistent, not because his mood has changed, but, but despite his mood remaining the same, he's been consistent with his own promises. Despite his ongoing anger, he made a promise and is consistently restrained. If you read the commentaries, there's some debate about what Ham, this middle son, is actually doing. Is it just taking a look or is, it, is there something more sordid going on? In verse 22 of our passage, the, the Bible the Bible's not going to dwell on it like some kind of tabloid journalist. It's enough to know something's wrong, but when Noah speaks after he wakes up, I think we're, we're to understand he's speaking in a way God's words now. He speaks of the impact Ham's sin will have going forward, the impact of going down that way of living that Ham has begun to choose, the way it will work out through his family. And he speaks of Ham's son. It's not going to stop just with Ham. It will carry on down through the generations. You pursue this, this way of living. Verse 25, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. End of verse 26, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. End of verse 27, may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. These words reflect God's view, his judgment. He's not changed his mind. He curses human sin, and human sin will have consequences. But it won't be immediate wipeout judgment. It won't be another flood yet. And the reason we saw last week when John was speaking is because of God's promises. Back in 8, verse 21... Just further up that page. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the sacrifice that Noah offered, and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. God's judgment doesn't fall because he's changed his mind or he's inconsistent. It's because he's made a restraining covenant promise. 
And Genesis 9, 18 onwards is the first opportunity after the flood for us to see if God's consistent, if he'll keep that promise. And he does. The God you meet in the Bible is a promise-keeping God. He restrains his judgment. What does that mean for us? As we kind of look at this weird, familiar story, what does that mean for us if this is what we're like and that's what God's like? We should be humble and hopeful. I know some of you have been doing exams. Coming up to my GCSEs, I became... I became a bit of a cheeky lad in my maths class, gobby to the point of rude. I'm very good. And the way it is sometimes when you're a teenager, you just don't judge things properly. You think you're, you're going to get away with it. And one day it was too much, and I was sent to the head of maths. I was a bit in over my head at this point, and a letter was sent home to my parents. A letter that had to be acknowledged with a reply from my parents. And I knew I was in trouble. I knew no matter how much trouble I was in at school, I would be in a shed load more trouble at home. I felt like it could have been the end of my young life at that point. And so in a moment of madness, I took a high-risk strategy. And I'm not commending this, but I forged not just a signature, but an entire letter from my parents. My dad's signature was impossible to forge, so I went for my mum's signature and um, my maths teacher, Mrs. Thompson, sent me to deliver it to Mr. McClellan, the head of maths. And I came back to class after handing it over, hoping I'd got away with it. I sat there for about five minutes, and then the door opened. And Mr. McClellan came in with my letter in his hand. And he walked up to Mrs. Thompson, and he showed her the letter. And they both looked at it. And then they looked at me held my attention for a while. I felt my life was hanging in the balance. And then he left. And it was never mentioned again. How did I feel? You imagine all sorts of things. Did I think I got away with it? Is that my feeling? Not at all. I knew I hadn't got away with it. I knew I hadn't, but for some reason they had restrained themselves. I was very grateful, and they didn't do what they could have done. I can only imagine how much, how much what don't forge letters from your parents. I can only imagine how much worse, but for some reason they restrained. They didn't do what they could have done. How should we think about the world and all the stuff that's wrong? Are people just getting away with things? How are we to think about ourselves and all the stuff that we do wrong? Have you just got away with it? With your spouse, with your kids, at work? I mean, life just goes on, doesn't it? History just goes on. But this part of Genesis gives us a perspective on all of that. Predictable human sin, God's consistent restraint. Reading chapter 10 that that Olaf heroically did. We, we get a kind of edited history of Noah's family, the people that, 
that come from Japheth, verse 2, Ham, verse 6, Shem, verse 21. It'll give us hints of tribes and nations, of, of cities that were built, of dominant leaders who appeared. History just goes on. And you could think, has, has God just forgotten? Has he changed his mind? And some might think that. But I think a writer subtly says something different. Do you, did you notice how, how he began and ended? Verse 1 and verse 31. Verse 1 says this, of chapter 10. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons. And see how he ends it? After the flood. End of this chapter, verse 31. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to the lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over all the earth. And he won't miss it out after the flood. This picture of history that he gives us and he brackets it with the flood. As you see history going on, don't forget God's, don't forget the flood. Don't forget God's judgment. Don't forget what people deserve. Don't think you've got away with anything. Don't think God's changed his mind. The terrible events that happen across the world, the bullying that takes place in schools, the upskirting in town centers, the seedy things that go on in your life and my life. The character of God that brought the flood remains the same, unchanging. No one gets away with anything. And like a teenage boy sitting in his maths class knowing he doesn't get away with stuff, it should humble us. It should make us reflect on what we're like before God. And don't be too quick when you see things going wrong in the world to angrily demand that God does something. Don't be too quick to bypass the mercy of God's consistent restraint. But there's also hope in this passage. And I guess you find it in God's restraining promise. I mean, if he's restrained himself, you suspect it might be because he's got a plan, a plan better than the ark, even. You come back to that first story, and there's some funny details in it. Back in Genesis 3, if you can remember back to that, back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve feel naked and ashamed, and we're told God covers them. He provides coverings. Genesis 9, Noah, in his disgrace, two of his sons cover him. Same kind of thing happening. And you feel the Bible is, is wanting to draw our attention. Just look at this. Just look at this. When people disgrace themselves in sin, when they're all uncovered, someone comes in and, and covers them. You feel the Bible is wanting to tell us the problems we have, the predictable sin in our lives that bring shame and disgrace, they need to be covered in some way. I don't know if you noticed as, as we read it, chapter 9, verse 21, how quickly Noah's sin is described. It's just, a, it's just a line. In verse 22, how quickly Ham's sin is described. Just a line. Sin's often like that. It doesn't take long to break things, does it? You know this. Too much wine, a careless word, a click of a mouse, a one-night stand, and you've broken something. A reputation, a friendship, promises, marriages, just like that. And then did you notice when we get to verse 23, when Shem and Japheth come to cover their father, 
You read it again later, but you notice the change of pace and how slow and awkward it all feels. They take a garment and they put it across their shoulders between them. And then they walked backwards there and covered, they walked backwards and covered their father's naked body. Their faces turned away so that they would not see their father naked. You know this, don't you? Breaking things is really easy. It's done in a moment. Trying to fix things, a reputation, a relationship, a marriage, trying to fix a sin-spoiled person, if possible at all, it takes very often the slow, awkward, costly steps of someone who helps you. Some of you feel that, don't you? There's things you know you've done wrong, you've made a mess, and fixing it seems, it seems to take forever. It's two steps forward, one step back. Genesis 9 says, when Noah messes things up, God doesn't delight in that. And he restrains his judgment. It's a mercy for us. You feel, you feel that yourself? Here's what Genesis 9 says to you. God doesn't delight when you mess things up takes no pleasure in it and he's restrained his judgment God doesn't delight in it and you when you see others messing things up never delight when they mess up their lives God doesn't and he commends Shem and Japheth who take on the slow awkward task of covering their father's sin why would God commend that well because in the story of the Bible it's what God has committed himself to They give a little picture, almost like a shadow of what God is like in the bigger scale. The hope we have is that God restrains the judgment we deserve and instead himself begins the slow, awkward steps that will cover up our guilt and our shame and finally fix this world. And the sons of Genesis 9, they point forward to another son, And it wasn't a garment he had across his shoulders. It was a wooden cross. And on that cross, he took on himself the flood of God's judgment that had been restrained until that point so that he could cover us with forgiveness and new life. John, one of Jesus' disciples, writes about it this way. For God so loved the world didn't delight for a moment in the mess it got into. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. How are we to think when terrible things happen in the world? It's not the only thing. But we should remember it's predictable human sin does God care why didn't he do something well he does care and he's being restrained wanting to provide a savior how should we respond we should be humble before him and hopeful in his saving plan the music group are going to come back up now but as they do that why not just take a moment yourself just for some quiet reflection maybe you want to pray and we'll let the musicians come back up